You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 10th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Russia says it will retreat from the strategic Ukrainian city of Kherson. We'll look at what that means for the illegal war. France is also beating a retreat, shutting down eight years of anti-jihad operations in the Sahel in a move that may worsen the security threat to the region. Then... Well, I think what China's been doing over the last two decades has been buying or stealing as much Western intellectual property as possible. There are reports that former military pilots from Australia, Britain and Canada are training the Chinese Air Force. We'll cross to Taipei for more on that. We'll have a rustle through the front pages and get the latest urban environment news. And of course... Now let's be clear, this election is not a referendum, it's a choice. It's a choice between two very different visions of America. We'll be looking in some detail at the results of the US midterm elections and what that means for the presidential poll in 2024. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. US President Joe Biden has expressed relief after Democrats managed to fend off major Republican gains in the US midterm elections. The House of Representatives looks likely to flip to the Republicans, but the future makeup of the Senate hinges on three races that are too close to call. More on that in a moment. More than five million residents in China's southern metropolis of Guangzhou have been placed under lockdown as authorities rush to stamp out a widening COVID outbreak. Break. And Russia's President Vladimir Putin will not be attending an in-person summit of leaders from the group of 20 nations in Bali next week. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, Russia has ordered a pullout from the west bank of the Dnipro River in the face of Ukrainian attacks near the southern city of Kherson. Well, I'm joined now by Dr Jenny Mathers, who's Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, many thanks for joining us once again. What has happened militarily to force this move? Right. So over the past number of weeks, really, the Ukrainian forces have been targeting um, particularly logistical and transport uh, structures, which the Russian military depends upon, uh, especially bridges over the river. So currently, um, you know, before this pullback, uh, Russian forces occupied uh, the city of Kherson. Um, and the, that is mainly on the, the western bank of the Dnepr River. Um, however, the Russians were very much uh, reliant upon transport across the river to supply them with sort of basic goods as well as ammunition and so on. Um, and by targeting the bridges um, of the across the river, the Ukrainians were able to reduce the, the Russians' ability to supply their forces um, while the Ukrainians were pushing hard on them from the north. So it's sort of being squeezed from both areas. Eventually, the Russians have obviously decided um, that this is not a defensible position and it makes more sense militarily to withdraw across the river to have the river between themselves and the enemy rather than having the river at their back. And so how significant is this? I mean, is it a turning point in the war? 
It certainly could be. Um, I mean, Kherson is important um, militarily because of its strategic location, not only on the river, which runs <clears throat> right up into the middle of Ukraine. So control of the river is important, but also because it's so close to um, Crimea um, and so close to the Black Sea. So it's also been called the gateway to Crimea. And of course, Crimea is a, a major uh, target for the Ukrainian forces to try and, and regain control of it. Uh, it's also a major prize for the Russians who have a lot of you know, military bases and use Crimea as a, a base on which to launch, from which to launch attacks on, on Ukraine. So, you know, it, it's important militarily, strategically um, for both countries. And so having Russia pull back like this, I think, is is potentially very significant indeed. And what does it mean politically for Putin? Well, it's not good news for him because only, you know, a matter of weeks ago, he announced with great fanfare uh, that Russia was annexing four regions, including the region of Kherson. Um, Kherson was the only major sort of regional capital city uh, for the Russians to have taken in this mass invasion stage of the war. And they took it quite early on after the 24th of February. They've been able to hold on to it uh, until just recently. Um, so, yes, it's symbolically very, very important. It's also been admitted um, publicly by the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, that Russian forces were withdrawing. Um, and this is really an unusual step because previously when the Russians have had to retreat, it's been you know covered up, it's been downplayed, it's been minimized. Um, but this time they're being quite upfront about it. So, yes, it does suggest a step change in, in the dynamics, really. I wonder why that is. I mean, could it be a trap? Well, it's always possible, of course, and, and the Ukrainians are treating this apparent withdrawal with a great deal of caution. They're pointing out that, um, you know, there are signs that uh, there are still some Russian troops uh, on the, the western side of the river. Um, they may not all withdraw. It, it could be a trap. Um, and certainly they will have, the Russians will have booby-trapped, uh, you know, uh, properties and, and, and buildings and so on, which we've seen happen before when they've withdrawn from an area or been forced to retreat from an area that they previously occupied. When the Ukrainians come in, they find you know, all kinds of mines and, and other booby traps that are, are laid uh, you know, afterwards. So that will certainly be happening. But whether it's a more sophisticated sort of ambush trap, um, we have yet to see. Now, I think it would be a very clever strategy on the Russians' part in many respects uh, to do something like this, to lure the Ukrainian forces in and then you know, sort of seize control of them. But the question is whether Russia has that capacity to do that just at the moment, because their military capacity has been degraded so very significantly over the past number of months. Uh, it may simply not be capable of uh, carrying off such a, such a strategy. Mm. Now, they say they're going to retreat. Have they, in fact, done so? And where have they gone? Well, a lot of forces have retreated. It's it's a fairly slow process because um, you know it was a, it was a major um, area where they had uh, sort of dug in. They'd also brought in uh, some of their own people and appointed uh, officials, um, and so they, there's been a process of trying to evacuate uh, civilians, or certainly civilians who support uh, the Russian occupation who were willing to go along with it, um, and those people that they brought in to kind of run the city and the administration, as well as the military forces. So it's it's a it's a lengthy process. And it it hasn't completed. Um, so yes, they have they are withdrawing. They have withdrawn to a large extent, um, mainly across to the other side of the river. Although there have been indications that at least some of the the Russian forces that have withdrawn uh, may be redeployed to other parts of Ukraine uh, for further fighting and and further duties. So we we have yet to see exactly where they're all going to go. You mentioned civilians. I wonder what's happened to the people, including over ten thousand children forcibly displaced from the area. 
Yes, I mean, this is one of the, the many um, horrific stories of this war is the fact that in so many of the areas that have been occupied by Russia, um, civilians have been forcibly uh, relocated to Russia, effectively kidnapped. Um, and a significant portion of those civilians have been children, um, some of them from orphanages or, or you know, who've been separated from their, their parents and their families. Um, and we have evidence, of course, that some of those children are being adopted by Russian families in Russia. And so they may never, you know, fully get back to their Ukrainian families. They may never know eventually that they that they really are Ukrainian. Um, so yeah, we don't we don't know exactly. Uh, this is one of the priorities of the the Ukrainian government is to is to find out what's happening, what has happened to those civilians, and to try and get as many of them back as possible. Now, the Russian security chief is in Tehran for talks. I wonder if this indicates that Iran will become further enmeshed in this war beyond supplying drones. Well, that's, you know, again, something that we have yet to see. I mean, certainly Russia is looking to pull all the levers at its disposal, although they're increasingly limited in, in terms of what they can choose uh, to try and, uh, and, and use. Uh, but certainly Iran has become an increasingly important uh, supporter and partner to Russia in this war, you know, in terms of supplying drones and and but also, you know, sort of moral and political support. Uh, maybe more is forthcoming. We we just don't quite know yet. But they, but Russia is certainly keen to keep those links uh, warm and to maintain you know good relationships uh, with Tehran at, at the moment. And do you think that Iran could act as a peace broker? Well, again, it's possible, and certainly Turkey has has tried to to act as a peace broker. Um, so yes, third parties who have who are on good terms with Russia um, have the best possibility, really, of um, acting as sort of honest brokers in a way. Whether they would be similarly accepted by the Ukrainians is another question. But but certainly, you know, looking to those countries that Russia is willing to speak to and willing to cooperate with at the moment, um, in, in the hopes that they can provide some kind of a, a of a peace. Uh, kind of platform is is a, a strong possibility for the future. Now, of course, we know that the US midterms have been going on and the founder of the mercenary Wagner Group uh, and a close ally of, of Vladimir Putin admitted that Russia has meddled in US elections and will continue to do so. I wonder if there's any evidence that the midterms were interfered with and, and will this US election change anything between the Kremlin uh, and uh, and the US? Right. Well, I mean, certainly Russia has a a, a recent track record um, stretching at least back to 2016 to uh, of interference in, in U.S. Um, elections. When I say interference, um, I don't necessarily mean sort of hacking into the, the election systems and changing the votes, but much more trying to influence through, you know, social media use, through trolling and, and the Internet and, and so on, um, trying to influence the way that Americans think and the way that they vote. Um, and certainly, you know, this this will have been going on, although I'm not aware of any specific evidence for the, the midterm elections, but this, this sort of general uh, attempt to influence uh, U.S. political opinion will have been going on. And certainly we know from very blatant uh, statements made in, in Russian uh, sort of television commentary um, that, you know, the Russians were hopeful. Of a, of a strong Republican return in the midterm, a so-called red wave, um, and that that would really shift the, the balance of power in Washington, and it would really push the Biden administration to uh, withdraw some of its support uh, from Ukraine and to really push the Ukrainians into peace negotiations. Mm. Now, this red wave has not materialized, although, you know, it is likely that um, that the Congress will be, if not dominated by the Republicans slightly, then at least, you know, more evenly balanced. 
Uh, so it's not going to be easy for the Biden administration, but it certainly isn't going to be the sort of uh, um, you know victory for the Republicans that, that Putin would have hoped for. Uh, but there may be salvation coming in the form of 18 billion uh, from the EU. They've put forward this proposal for for a package. How likely is that to be signed off by the membership? Well, I mean, support for Ukraine is is still very strong in the EU, although there are some individual countries with with reservations. Um, so, you know, I think the momentum towards supporting Ukraine is is still moving in that direction, um, and and no sign yet that it's going to be halted or reversed. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That was Dr. Jenny Mathers there, and this is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. Just gone 8.13 in Paris, at 7.13 here in London. Now, yesterday, President Macron of France announced his country would be ending its eight-year anti-jihadist operation in the Sahel. At one point, there were 5,500 French troops taking part in Operation Bakan, which was initially launched in 2013 to stop the advance of insurgents in Mali. The operation also involved Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso and Mauritania, but ceased to operate in February when France announced its military withdrawal from Mali. Well, Paul Melly is a regional analyst on West Africa and the Sahel, and he joins me now. Paul, many thanks for coming on the show. Why has this operation come to an end? Well, what's actually happened is this is a political breaking point because in military terms, what France has done is shift from a position where it was in the front line, if you like, of the uh, fight against jihadist groups in the Sahel, that dry, arid fringe that stretches across West Africa uh, from the Atlantic along the fringe of the Sahara. So for several number of years, really, since uh, 2013, when the French were asked to come into Mali to stop a jihadist advance that appeared to threaten the capital, and the government asked for France's help. France has had this thousands of troops in the region. And as you say, the numbers peaked at five and a half thousand. Um, but what France is doing now is stepping back into a support role. And this was originally announced in the middle of last year by President Macron. The idea is that France can provide intelligence backup, aerial surveillance, airstrike support, for example, Mirage jets that uh, the West African governments don't have, uh, but that most of the operations on the ground, the fighting on the ground, would be done by the African armies. But the dispute with Mali really distracted attention from that. So instead of what had been a sort of, in, at least in Macron's mind, a sort of planned and negotiated step back into a, this support role. 
suddenly there was this huge bust up with the Malians in public and they made it extremely difficult. They complained bitterly about the French approach. They accused the French of, at one stage, even this summer, they even suggested the French would be arming the jihadists, though no neutral observer really believes that. And so France decided to withdraw from Mali completely while still maintaining a presence right across the region. So it's got about 3,000 troops now across the Sahel, still in Niger, which is now the hub of the operation, but in Chad and Burkina Faso as well. And also troops on in key West African coastal countries, particularly Cote d'Ivoire and uh, Senegal. So what does this mean for the security of the region? It doesn't really actually change the military position on the ground, which is very, very difficult. Um, but what it does do is, at least the French government hopes, lower the political exposure that France has faced. There's a lot of resentment and criticism of French action. Uh, some people saw the military presence as an attempt to restore post-colonial influence because, of course, France used to be the colonial power across this region. Now, independence was many years ago, around 1960 or soon afterwards, for all these countries. And so that's a long time back. And many people felt uncomfortable with the return of French troops, even if, in fact, they had come back at the request of their own governments. But in practical military terms, uh, the position is that France will be there in the background, providing, for example, special forces, bringing in airstrikes, uh, providing intelligence data. The French have a very close relationship with the Americans, uh, which, of course, the African countries don't have that kind of access to what you might call sort of NATO level exchange of information, that kind of support. Um, but the the military situation will still remain really difficult because this is an absolutely vast region and even if you take the 3000 french troops plus the tens of thousands of those in the armies of the african countries concerned it's going to be really really difficult um, to tackle because of course always fighting small armed groups of guerrillas who move around in the bush very rapidly on motorbikes rush up uh, launch attacks or um, put roadside bombs hidden in the mud or the dust by the road uh, and then uh, move away. That always for a conventional armed forces, tackling that kind of thing will be will be really difficult. And there are huge development challenges. This is a an arid, very poor, fragile region where resources of land and water are under massive pressure. Population is rising. All this instability has hugely disrupted the normal process of development. And of course, when economic life is disrupted, when people don't have stable incomes, when they can't move their animals around freely or plant their fields or go to market safely, that makes the problem worse. And some people then become disenchanted and get tempted to join the armed groups. So 
the military situation will remain very difficult, but that's not because of Macron's announcement yesterday, which is more, if you like, a recognition of political reality, but not a military change on the ground. Mm. As you say, France has been very unpopular in the region and Africa is the target of a hearts and minds operation with both China, Russia and Western countries vying for popularity. Do you think that the ending of this operation will will impact on that? Is it, in fact, a a window for, for China and Russia to jump in there? I don't think it's really too much of a window for them to jump in now. Um, the, you've got sort of two. It, you've got two things going on. You've got a an information war, as you say, being fought out on the internet. All sorts of rumours go around. For example, um, about a year ago, the French supplied some motorbikes to the Malian army. That was before pulling out of Mali, so that the army could move around more quickly itself in tackling the jihadists. Photos of this delivery of the motorbikes to Gao, a city in northern Mali, appeared on the internet. And all sorts of um, rumours went around saying that these were really French supplying the jihadist groups. Uh, That kind of information war is going to carry on. Um, There was a a case of some bodies that were supposedly found in a mass grave. And then it was discovered that actually this was a sort of a bit of a fabrication to give the impression that the French had been involved in human rights abuses. That kind of battle is going to go on on the on the internet, on the airwaves, but particularly on the internet and on social media. At the same time, there's a practical battle. Uh, in Mali, very specifically, the Malian government has brought in Wagner, the Russian military contractor, Russian mercenaries, essentially, but led but Wagner is a company that's very close to the Kremlin. So clearly this has Russian government, shall we say unofficial, but private uh, assent um, as their military partner. But there's not much evidence that the Wagner troops are being very effective in helping the Malian army. Although um, it's very hard to check facts on the ground because now access in Mali is more limited and it's harder to see what's going on. Uh, but the evidence seemed to suggest that Wagner is just making localized impacts in a few areas. And some of these are associated with claims that there have been human rights abuses by the army and by Wagner operatives against local communities. The Chinese are in a different position because they're really more concerned with economic influence. And that, as in many parts of Africa, can sometimes be in complement to what uh, European mm. governments or Western governments do. You know, the Chinese will tend to do roads and railways and that kind of thing. And the, the Western governments will often do sort of budget support or um, support for, for example, education uh, and sectors like that. So China, China is, this isn't really the part of Africa where the battle for influence between China and the West is going on. But there's clearly uh, a tussle uh, for influence in Mali, particularly between Moscow and the West and in Burkina Faso, where there was a coup d'etat. Well, there have been two coup d'etat over the course of this year, but the latest military leader in Burkina Faso, when he was pressed on this point, he said he wants to try and keep good relations with everybody. And he specifically mentioned both the French and the Russians. Paul, thank you very much indeed. That was Paul Melly there. Now, still to come on the programme, we get a roundup of the latest urbanism and environment news with Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter. This 
is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. There have been several reports recently that Beijing has recruited former Australian, British and Canadian military pilots to train the Chinese Air Force. Australia is taking steps to block this move and the UK and Canada have also expressed concern. Well, Sophia Yan is The Telegraph's China correspondent. She joins me from Taipei now. Sophia, many thanks for coming on The Globalist. These pilots all seem to be of retirement age. Is their knowledge and expertise up to date? What's interesting about China trying to get this expertise is that there's a lot of interest. It indicates that China is very interested in learning from foreign militaries, trying to fine-tune its abilities and preparing its own military for whatever might come. Now, the Chinese military has many bells and whistles, but it lacks experience, and it really needs to learn how to best use what it's got, and that seems to be why it's interested in, in finding these pilots for that training. Because you have to remember that the Chinese military itself has never really fought an actual war. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, though, why former members of Western Air Forces are willing to work in China. Is it the cash? Well, these contracts that we've heard about are quite high, some of them worth as many, uh, as much as a quarter of a million pounds to conduct the training. Now, former military pilots, it's hard to know how up-to-date their knowledge uh, is, really, because it depends perhaps on how long they've been out and what exactly they have been asked to do. Now, there are laws governing what people in these positions are allowed to uh, divulge publicly uh, in terms of what they were doing. And the UK has been really clear that this is something that they're concerned with. Now, training, engagement, collaboration between militaries on the face of it, this happens, you know, and to a certain extent, it seems fairly benign. But there are things that the Chinese are learning about Western militaries that could potentially help them gain an advantage later. Will this pose a security threat down the line? This is the question that's up for debate that governments are trying to figure out. And this is a very complicated discussion. Mm, uh, Because it's not actually illegal, is it? Well, to a certain extent, there's a a trust issue here. A certain extent, uh, the trust has been broken. China often says one thing, does another. If they're getting this training, they say they're just asking for a bit of help. Well, what is it that's being exchanged? How much knowledge is being exchanged? Uh, you know, you think about things like universities collaborating with Chinese military research universities. On the face of it, that is simply just that collaboration. But what kind of information and knowledge is being gleaned by the Chinese? What are they getting? How much are they getting? Are they getting other things? Are they finding using that connection to get other information that they shouldn't have otherwise? I mean, these are really big questions that governments are thinking about at this moment. Mm. Is there a chance that the Western pilots could have gone in with government blessing in order to perhaps install false information or, 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 or spy in some way? 
This is something that has not been made clear. Uh, there's nothing that I've seen that would indicate that at this point. Governments do all sorts of things, and the British government, for instance, hasn't said anything to that extent. Mm. Now, there are suggestions that um, Australian and Chinese leaders will meet soon. The uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has told his Australian counterpart that the country's relations had undergone positive changes and each side should address the other's legitimate concerns. Is there a a meeting likely to take place and would the subjects of pilots fall under those legitimate concerns? What's interesting now... We're just coming out of China's 20th Party Congress, and China seems to be making moves to try to reach out again, to have certain meetings, to try to figure out where it stands on the world stage. This, to a certain extent, is post-Party Congress housekeeping and also the potentially a way to set up for Chinese leader Xi Jinping's third term, his historic third term. China and the West, obviously relations are not... They're not very solid right now. China has a lot ahead of a lot of challenges ahead of itself in terms of trying to win back some of that trust that's been broken and trying to smooth the way. The West now looking at China and thinking, well, how do we deal with this, the rise of China? We're in a completely unprecedented territory at this point. One man rule in China is something we haven't seen in decades like this. Uh, there were many moves within China itself to prevent that from happening again. So this is really something that remains to be seen. China to a certain extent, doesn't necessarily want to cut itself off entirely from the world. It is the world's second largest economy. It does have a lot of influence and has investments in different countries. It's hard to decouple entirely. It's not really possible in this globalized world that we live in. And so this is something that we'll see perhaps more of, an attempt to try to figure out where everybody stands and where everybody's red lines are at this point. Sophia, thank you very much indeed. That was Sophia Yan there talking to us from Taipei. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. U.S. President Joe Biden has expressed relief after Democrats managed to fend off major Republican gains in the U.S. midterm elections. The House of Representatives looked likely to flip to the Republicans, but the future makeup of the Senate hinges on three races that are too close to call. We'll have more on the midterms later on today's show. More than five million residents in China's southern metropolis of Guangzhou have been placed under lockdown. The order comes as authorities rush to stamp out a widening COVID outbreak. Infections in the city topped 2,000 for two days running in the financial hub's worst outbreak so far. And Russia's President Vladimir Putin will not be attending an in-person summit of leaders from the group of 20 nations in Bali next week. Russia's embassy in Indonesia said Putin will instead be represented by his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 8.30 in Zurich, 7.30 here in London. Now, the US voted in the midterms yesterday and the results are still trickling in. These elections are generally bad for the incumbent, but the predicted red tide did not happen. Well, joining me in the studio to analyse what we know so far is Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. So what do we know of the results so far? That's right. What we know is that the Democrats have dodged a bullet. And that is, as midterm election performances go, 
It was actually pretty good. Most incumbent parties who hold the White House during the midterms get quite a serious spanking um, in the elections between presidential cycles. And this one was actually quite mild. Um, President Biden, for somebody who is likely to lose control of the House of Representatives, the lower house of Congress, even though that is likely to happen, he is feeling quite confident and quite strong and is actually celebrating these results as a very good showing. And what do you think drove the fact that the the Democrats did much better than expected? Yeah, there are a few things um, and some interesting stuff to dive into. And that is the one thing is that candidate quality from the Republicans had a lot to do do with it. And one of the takeaways from the midterm elections is that candidates from the Republican Party who were promoted or selected by President Trump, uh, many of them lost. And and so there was a problem with candidate quality. Um, there was a strong turnout, not quite as strong as expected, um, but a lot of women came to the polls to support pro-choice candidates. Um, And several states actually passed state laws enshrining legal access to abortion. Um, And so that was another thing that brought people out to the polls. Um, Turnout was very high. Young people voted in enormous numbers. They also tended to vote Democratic. Mm. What do these results then indicate as far as the 2024 presidential election? Well, that's right. I mean, elections are never really the end of anything. They're always the beginning of, of, of something. And in this case, this is really the beginning now, the kickoff of the 2024 presidential election cycle. Um, And I think what's going to happen now is that both parties as organizations are going to have to look very deep inside themselves and think about who's going to emerge as the front runners for the candidacy. President Biden has stated that he will run again for re-election, and he said he will make a formal announcement in the beginning of next year. So that's out there. He's, he's put his flag in the ground on that, perhaps on the back of this better-than-expected performance in the midterms. He does, however, turn 80 this month. That's right. He will be, I suspect that means he'll be, oh, how old my math is really bad, so he'll be 82 in um, 2024, two years from now, and that means that he would serve a, a, a term of office until he's 86. By the way, Chuck Grassley, a senator from Iowa, was re-elected in this cycle at the age of 89 to a six-year term, so he will serve well into his 90s. Um, We're breaking all kinds of records here about the longevity of presidents. I remember when Ronald Reagan ran for president, he was deemed to be too old, and I believe at the time he was in his 60s. Um, And so there's a lot of of speculation about his age. Uh, I mean, and it's not just age, actually, that this has been a really diverse cohort that's been elected. Um, Yeah, that's right. So... The, the problem with the Democrats is that if you if you abandon an incumbent president, it indicates that the party, it, it, the likelihood is it triggers a party in crisis. And, and that the other thing is that then who do they turn to? Kamala Harris, the vice president, is not a very popular politician. She's not seen to be a very good retail politician, the kind of person who gets out in the street and shakes hands and connects with voters. Um, they're thinking about, there are rumors flying around about Gavin Newsom, uh, the governor of California. Um, that's also a slightly problematic candidacy because the rest of the United States sort of hates California. Uh, so they have to wonder how deep their bench is. Uh, and then the, then you go over to the, the Republican bun fight uh, and, and what they do about putting forward a candidate. Um, President Trump prior 
to the results of the midterm said that he was making a very, very, very important announcement next week. Um, if he reschedules that, he looks weak. If he declares, he's doing it on the back of a slate of candidates who lost. Mm. Um, the Republicans need to sort themselves out on this one. I mean, so DeSantis, Ron DeSantis would be his challenger? So Ron DeSantis is the one who everyone is talking about. Mike Pompeo, though, remains in the background. Tom Cotton remains in the background. We don't know who else wants to come out. And and either the Republicans go in for an incredibly messy primary season where you have President Trump flinging mud at everyone else in the Republican Party, or you try to sort this out quietly and you urge him to sort of fade into the background and you bet you place all your bets on DeSantis. Yeah. And now, I mean, does this mean looking at Trump's preferred candidates who all did very badly that Trump now has lost the support of the GOP? I was just we were just looking at the New York Post uh, headline <laughs> earlier, and it seems that he certainly doesn't have the support of, of Murdoch in his press. Any That's longer. right. The Murdoch papers have been gradually turning up the heat on Trump and have switched essentially camps from being fairly strong supporters, particularly the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, but this, there's this you know, damningly satirical cover um, on the New York Post um, likening Mr. Trump to Humpty Dumpty, but saying that he couldn't even build a wall, but then he had a great fall. Um, and, and it's not a very flattering picture. And so um, if one of his former constituencies and sources of support, and that is the Murdoch press, um, is pulling the rug out from under him. Um, you have to think that this is a beginning of a process of reorienting Republican support towards an other candidate. It'll be interesting to watch where the Murdoch organization, if it does it you know, unilaterally, who they throw their support behind and whether they also back DeSantis. Yeah. Charles, let's have a look at some of uh, the other newspapers and what they're saying, not necessarily about the, uh, the midterms. In fact, let's go and have a look at British politics now, because... Matt Hancock, who was, of course, the health minister who was in charge here during the worst of the COVID crisis, who was sacked for getting rather too close to his personal assistant, uh, but also widely blamed by many for mishandling of COVID, has just entered I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is a reality television programme. And I think you just need to explain a little bit about how this show works. So this is a reality show where contestants have to do all sorts of really revolting things. Um, and then they sort of one by one, I guess, get voted off of this show, depending upon, you know, how much they retain their composure while they're basically debasing themselves on national television by, you know, eating maggots and, and, and sort of um, living in a jungle and, um, you know, basically humiliating themselves. And, and in the Times, um, Quentin Lett, who's the parliamentary sketch writer for the Times, has really outdone himself. Um, and, and in a headline piece that says, Matt Matt Hancock enters the I'm a Celebrity jungle. What Quentin Letts does, the device that he uses in this piece, which is so great, is he compares the humiliating experience of surviving the jungle to the humiliating experience of surviving Parliament. <laughs> um, and so apparently um, Matt Hancock had to crawl through mud in the most recent episode. And he said, well, he did that every day in Parliament anyway, essentially. Um, Matt Hancock says that that 
The jungle is full of creepy crawlies and squeaking rodents and small scorpions. And Quentin Lentz says, so is Parliament. Uh, <laughs> and, and Matt Hancock said, you know, I've never come across a snake in close quarters. And Quentin Lentz says, wait a minute, you've served in Parliament. So um, it, it's a great piece to read. It, it is a great piece to read. And I also have to say it's a great piece of television, particularly if you don't like Hancock. There is a facility for people to vote themselves. I might have downloaded the app. It's possible I voted for Hancock. Perhaps you voted more than once. (laughs) But certainly not in a parliamentary position. Uh, Right, let's go to the FT. And we're looking at uh, uh, Italy now and the new leader, Georgia Maloney, who says she is not some sort of left-wing feminist. That's right. We have an opinion piece in the FT, which is a fascinating read that says why Italy's first woman prime minister wants to be called Il Presidente. And I don't know much about Italian grammar, but that is the masculine form of the job title for president. And apparently, Giorgio Maloney actually wanted to be called Il Signor Presidente, basically Mr. President, um, and walked that back a bit. But what she's told the Italian public is she does not want to be called La Presidente. And, and so there's some interesting theories in the FT discussion of this position. And, and one of the interesting ones is that women succeed by not having to disrupt the male hierarchy and the male power structure. And by saying that you are il presidente and not la presidente, you do less damage to the patriarchy, I suppose is the, is, is the best way to put it. Georgia Maloney's cabinet, as it turns out, we learn in the FT, is the least female cabinet in Italy in the last 10 years. And in Italy, that's a lot of cabinets. Um, she only has six out of 24 ministers in her cabinet as women. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because Georgia Maloney, when she first came out, she made quite a few centrist political declarations, support for the EU, support for Ukraine, things that you might not have been expecting from somebody who's sitting on top of a fairly right-wing coalition. Um, But here she comes out with a fairly right-wing statement saying, I'm not a feminist, I'm Mr. President, and I'm not disrupting the masculine power structure. Although, when you know, one of her first speeches, she said, she made a point, I am a mother, she said, I am a woman, I am a mother. That's right, she's written a biography, and the biography pays tribute to her mother, who actually worked in number of jobs to support the family. And and she's got this sort of traditionalist background, which suits her right wing position. And I think what she's trying to do, actually, and this does come up in the piece, is that she wants Italian women to be mothers. And she's being urged by Italian economists to get women into the workforce. Because if you had a 10% uplift in the number of women in the workforce, the FT tells us that Italian GDP would actually boost by 7%. And that's insane growth when you think about it. And Georgia uh, Georgia Maloney is telling people that she wants women to stay at home and be mothers. Quite, quite extraordinary. And and quite interesting when you compare perhaps to someone like Margaret Thatcher in that you can only succeed in this quite male-dominated world if, in fact, that's what you absorb yourself. You become, yeah. Precisely right. Yeah, precisely yeah. right. Uh, let's move on to the Japan Times now. This is about chief heat officers. That's right. This isn't a hugely Japanese story, but it's in the Japan Times, and it's the only place I've seen a story like this. And the Japan Times has an article saying that 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 cities now have chief heat 
officers. And Anne, for anybody who lived through the London summer of 2022, you better hope that London is one of these cities that has one. And it doesn't. Uh, for the time being, the, the Japan Times tells us that there are chief heat officers in places like Miami, in Athens, in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, and in Monterey, in Mexico. And these individuals are meant to be focusing urban support on vulnerable populations who are exposed, quite literally, um, during these intense heat waves. Um, the Japan Times tells us that in 2022, 15,000 people have died so far because of extreme heat. And that cities, you know, chief urban, chief city heat officer, um, cities take the heat far worse than rural areas. And what happens during these heat waves is that cities empty out. And these chief heat officers are trying to keep people in cities, keep cities cool, keep commerce ticking over, and keep the level, you know, healthcare levels high. Mm, how on earth is that achievable? Well, so they're trying to do a few things. There's awareness raising. There's the mapping of anticipated heat waves and the forecasting and predictions that go with it. And then there's emphasis on parks and green corridors and shelters and, and putting roofs on public open public markets uh, and, and protecting vulnerable outdoor workers from exposure to extreme heat. Mm. Uh, finally, let's have a look at this extraordinary auction. It's uh, Paul Allen's art. He, of course, was the Microsoft co-founder. Uh, and there's a two-part charity sale going on at Christie's. That's right. Um, the auction house Christie's in New York um, has set an absolutely gobsmacking record um, at auction, and they have sold $1.5 billion worth of art formerly belonging to the Microsoft billionaire Paul Allen. Um, they have been selling works by Cezanne and by Giacometti and Jasper Johns and Seurat and Van Gogh. And um, this broke the previous record for a collection, which was the paltry $922 million. <laughs> um, what the Times tells us at the bottom of this article, though, is that all of the money is going to charity, all $1.5 billion of it. Um, Christie's and the Allen Trust that sold the art were quite clever. They didn't divulge the identities of the charities so that none of the buyers could say, oh, well, I don't really want this money going to them. Uh, so secret charities, but they're getting a whopping sum this year. Uh, and just the, the range of works on offer looks absolutely extraordinary. Um, the Times says that it's essentially as if a major museum was put on sale. Um, Paul Allen, they say, was an incredibly dedicated art collector. He used a lot of consultants to make sure that he put together an extremely high quality collection. And I think one of the things that drove the prices here, we're told by the Times, is that Mr. Allen also had a very personal connection to each and every piece. He selected them with great care. He enjoyed them, he used them, he hung them in his homes, um, and it wasn't just for show. Absolutely. Uh, Charles, fascinating. Thank you for doing a double header there for us, the elections and the newspapers, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again very, very soon. That was Charles Hecker, who's a senior partner at Control Risks, and you are listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
It's time to talk urbanism news now with Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Rossiter. Sheena, good morning to you. How much is urbanism being talked about at COP27 right now in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt? Well, it is a pretty big piece of the puzzle because, as we know, urban centers are a large contributor when it comes to climate change. Cities are actually one of the biggest emitters when it comes to CO2 emissions, emitting an estimated 75% of global emissions coming mostly from transport and buildings that kind of operate within those cities. But in the past year as well, four out of five cities around the world also face significant climate hazards like extreme heat, rainfall, drought, and flood. Now, at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, there's about 500 delegates who are from urban centers, and these are everything from mayors, city councillors, governors, and other local officials. And they're doing a lot of sidebar events through the local governments and municipal authorities at the cities and regions for the UNFCC process. And that's running alongside COP27, but also happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, and also some of them are happening online. What they're looking at quite a bit is they're looking at what's known as the loss and damage fund. Nothing's concrete yet, but basically they're looking to take financing from richer countries and put that at the front lines of where climate change is happening, typically in cities that are more in the global south, more developing nations and low-income countries. And COP27 has been said to be kind of moving plans and putting them into implementation from pledges that have been made in the past. But mostly what's going to be happening here is seeking finances to help solve climate change problems in cities. That's going to be a big talking point and will continue to be one at COP27. Now, what have some of the mayors at the conference been saying? Yeah, so there's quite a few mayors that are there from C40 cities. Now, for people who don't know what C40 is, C40 is a network of mayors from about 100 of the world's leading cities, and they collaborate to deliver urgent action that's needed in the here and now to help combat climate change. So what these mayors are saying is they're saying, quote, the best way to protect people everywhere from rising prices, polluted air and extreme weather, and to secure good jobs in fairer societies is to invest in cleaner and greener cities, not in fossil fuels. Now, several of these mayors did write an open letter to fellow delegates at COP27 before the conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. And what these mayors stated in their open letter is they, quote, they can't do it alone. And in order to have admissions by 2030, they need to take urgent action. And the letter goes on to say that they're diving into in their driving investment through science-based policies, but further support is needed from national governments, particularly to improve the resilience to climate impacts. And they need national leaders to unlock those finances to support the critical work needed for these city leaders. And are there any countries that are looking to help municipalities on a national level? Yeah, in in the United States, they do seem to be doing some climate change provisions, and those are being put in place by the Biden administration. The U.S. is the world's second largest polluter, so some of these moves would be significant. And things have been put through, like the Inflation Reduction Act, including big subsidies for wind and solar energy and also electric vehicles, how those will be implemented purely by 2030 in the state of California, which is one of the biggest uh 
buyers and producers of cars in the country. So there's already those plans under law through the Biden administration. But with the midterm elections just happening yesterday and with the votes still rolling in, it's looking like it's hard to say if that political will will stay because in the U.S., the Democrats are likely to lose control of the House and maybe even the Senate, too. So we'll see if that actually continues to happen on a national level in the U.S. Uh, what about technical innovation? I mean, some of that is already helping cities. What, what are they? Yeah, so the World Economic Forum has identified a few, mostly coming from startups. So one of them that I thought was particularly interesting was the use of more living seawalls. So research by Zurich Insurance has identified about 570 coastal cities with populations of over 800 million people in total that those cities are going to be threatened by flooding if climate change causes sea levels to rise by just half a meter by the year 2050. So the Australian team uh, has now created Living Seawalls. This is a startup called Living Seawalls where they're producing 3D printed created blocks that kind of mimic a natural habitat. And what these natural seawalls do is they're kind of interested in holding back tide surges, but also to provide a kind of perfect environment for marine creatures and plants to thrive in there. So that will be kind of interesting to see if that shapes out and helps those coastal cities. But another one in cities that aren't anywhere near the coast it's just simply to have smaller rooftops as well. That was another thing that was identified in helping help fight climate change. So one startup called Metropodler, they're creating this kind of innovative way to tackle extreme heat and heavy rainfall by capturing water in specific layers on flat roofs and preventing urban flooding, and then later kind of releasing that water that's captured on those roofs to cool down buildings during excessive heat periods. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, four out of five cities around the world just in this past year alone are experiencing things like extreme heat. So having that kind of technology will also help in places like in the United States and in Europe as well. Mm. Now, as you said, we know that the global south has been disproportionately impacted by climate change. But what are the concrete actions being taken? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about all these uh, conference of the parties that we see every year, because, of course, it is a lot of talk and it's a lot of important people gathering in one place at one time. But it takes a really long time to make this action move. So according to the presidents from COP26 and now from COP27, delegates are supposedly, quote unquote, making good on their promises. So at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, the adaption agenda is being taken to enhance resilience for about 40 billion people living in some of the most vulnerable places uh, and communities that will be impacted by this by 2030. So to bring just a few numbers to it, climate action is becoming better distributed across the globe. And with this climate action portal, uh, 78% of the actors are now from the Asia-Pacific Asia area, and 67% are from Africa. So that's more participants that are getting involved in the global south, taking part in, in these talks, which will certainly happen. But how these materialize, of course, this will be a slow process. Sheena, thank you very much indeed. That's Sheena Rossiter there, and you're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. <laughs> 
And finally, this week, the Stockholm International Film Festival kicks off. In its 33rd year, the festival will be showing 130 films from 50 different countries, but special focus has been given to Ukraine. Monocle Sophie Monaghan-Coombs caught up with the festival co-founder and director Git Shainus to find out more about this choice. Ukraine has had a great cinema success for a number of years and was on the short list of countries for the Stockholm Film Festival a couple of years. And last year, Oleg Sentsov, Reno, won the bronze horse at the festivals. And only three months later, he laid down the camera and put up the weapon to defend his country. And then we sent out the press release already in February and was the first festival who did that and declined that we will not screen any Russian film that is supported by the state and that we also will focus the festival on Ukraine. So we have built up a quite a big program with new films from Ukraine, working shops with young directors from Ukraine and also panels and support of distribution and so on to have the grip on Ukraine. And as part of that focus on Ukraine, you're launching this film, which is 397 minutes, and I believe it's called Silence. Could you tell me a little bit more about that film? Well, in February, we had a festival, Stockholm Film Festival Junior, which is a festival for young children. So the focus then was what happened to children during the war. So we wanted to do a kind of manifestation with that. So we put together a film that we will screen the day before the festival is launched on the biggest square in Stockholm, the Norman Story. And we will send this film for one minute each for each children that is lost in this terrible war. And that means that it will be 397 minutes, many hours, and we will put up empty children's shares on the square. And you can say it's a silence manifestation, so there will be no crowds or uh, we, we know that a lot of politicians from the government will be there and ministers, but it's more like a manifestation for people to reflect on what it means, what the loss is in war crimes and for people who walk through the square to take a minute or to watch an empty screen. So it's a kind of opposite what we do later on when we start all these images and feeling that you have for film. So it's a kind of close to an art exhibition if you want, but in the way that the only thing you, you will meet is yourself and an empty screen. So you can call it an, a manifestation in support and respect for the children of Ukraine. It sounds incredibly powerful. Just finally, in your kind of role with the festival and with what is happening in Ukraine, how do you think about the role of culture and film, particularly in times of conflict? And has that evolved as you've been putting together this festival? I think it's more important than ever that we continue with culture and especially film festival have the role that you can be a platform so you can raise the voice of people who can't do that. And you also open up a window to the world. I mean, what you see in the cinema theatres is often 
English, American, French, maybe some film from Asia. But when it comes to film festival, you have 50 countries coming in and that explore the world. And it's very important that we continue to explore each other's culture for peace and for completion and for broaden people's mind of what's outside your own private area. That was the Stockholm International Film Festival co-founder and director Git Shanius in conversation with Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Emma Searle, Laura Kramer and Christy Evans, our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be uh, guiding your listening this morning with some great programmes coming up. And the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.